Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories, the years, and successes. Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Monik Suri. Monik is the founder and CEO of Therma, a technology startup whose mission is to help protect our food, health, and planet. Therma builds smart cooling technologies to reduce emissions and improve grid resilience of distributed energy resources through refrigeration to help power the grid across food and healthcare industries. Monik is an expert on climate and refrigeration as, and has been speaking at international climate events like the New York Times Climate Hub at COP26, Green Biz Verge Electrify, Techonomy Climate, and Webit Impact Forum. Previously, Monik co-founded the Governance Lab, an innovation center at NYU that develops technology solutions to improve government. He has been recognized amongst the top 100 Harvard alumni in technology is a past affiliate of Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, and previously held positions at global investment firm D.E. Shaw & Company and the White House National Economic Council. Welcome, Monik. So good to see you. Thank you so much for joining. It's a pleasure, Shauna. Great to be here. Um, I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. What is the last show that you've binged? Oof. Uh, just got into this show. Uh, <laughs> it's embarrassing. White Lotus. Oh, no, no. Everyone's watching that. You're going to make me want to watch it tonight. Okay. Um, three words. I know you're a new dad. So three words that would describe you as a dad. Obviously, your daughter can't describe you because she's only one. But how would you describe yourself as far as, um, I guess, aspirationally, how you want to be as a dad? Oof. Uh, aspirationally, I guess I'd say... Um... Uh, you know, indefatigable, you know, tireless um, and fearless. Uh, that's aspirational because I'm terrified of so many things that I never thought about now that I'm yeah. a But yeah, that would be aspirational. It's hard, right? I know all of a sudden you're so vulnerable because it's like you, you've never experienced love like this. Um, okay. What would the title of your autobiography be? Uh, serendipity mm -hmm. and self-awareness you know something like that yeah it's, it's kind of hard to know how life is going to unfold I really used to think I had it all plotted out when I was like 15 or 18 I was sure I knew how to you know take over the world and do it all um and you know of course life doesn't really go how we plan but uh so much of what's happened how life has unfolded has been serendipitous you know partly created partly um unexpected and uh, I think the the thing that's been a continual theme is some sense of like learning about myself 
So yeah. It's actually like, I mean, obviously the title of this podcast is what fuels you, but it, it is always about serendipity. Okay. So this is a kind of a weirder, like easier question. Um, I have a long list on this one, but what are some foods that you don't like? <laughs> I, I'm smiling because I, I find myself eating a lot of foods that I wouldn't choose to, but I hate food waste and my daughter leaves a lot of stuff on the table. So I end up being the guy who finishes everything on the table. Uh, turnips. Still cannot really eat a turnip. It's just never got there. Um, not a big fan of seaweed. Um, tried it in a few different restaurants and a few different continents. Just, yeah. I don't know. I didn't grow up eating a lot of seaweed. Never got there. Um, and I don't really, you know, I don't really like, uh, there's this uh, fruit persimmon. Uh, oh, yeah. It's got like, kind of puckering effects on your gums. <laughs> I just can't eat. My grandmother loves them. Yeah. Um, okay. So if you were famous <laughs> as an actor, performer, author, athlete, comedian, writer, like if you could be famous for something, um, I guess maybe tech CEO, but let's leave that one off. Um, what would you choose? Yeah, I, I really admire uh, people who kind of work across politics and diplomacy and, and, and work across, um, you know, culture in terms of, you know, conflict and, 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 and reducing human suffering. So I guess statesmen would be an ideal. Ooh. That would be an ideal life if, you know, if I could live a life well lived. You know, I'd look up. Is there someone in particular that you most admire in that, I guess, in that category? I mean, it's probably cliched, but I really admire President Obama, Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. I, I really, really admire him as a leader, as a bringer together of people, especially these days when there's so much polarization. Oh, I look at yes. people like him as, you know, can kind of really understand how to connect with humanity across so many differences and erudite but also approachable you know so mm -hmm. I, I admire him in a lot of ways and do you think that you'll ever pursue this is not my rapid fire but i gotta go there do you think you'll ever pursue <laughs> politics in the future or i guess 4.0 5.0 career life is long definitely long i have a few friends who've become elected officials recently um i have a lot of friends who've thought about politics uh I go back and forth on politics every political season. Um, it was a time when I was young in high school. All my friends would have said, oh, yeah, he's going to run for office uh, pretty soon. Uh, and then I went into college thinking I was going to go into government after and ended up not. So I don't know. I guess yeah. uh, do something meaningful first. I don't really love the idea of politics as a vocation. I really admire politicians who have like actually had an impact on the world first or done something that they can stand upon as opposed to just being professional politicians. So yeah, anyway, that's me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what's your favorite interview question to ask candidates? I guess we can't, maybe they'll listen and then they'll get like heads up, but I'm just curious. I really <sighs> like that. I like this as like little nuggets of takeaway. As I like asking people what motivates you. You know, I find that question you know, alive in me a lot. So I really like to ask people. Yeah. Like, you mean what, what, fuel, what fuels you? <laughs> <laughs> Ironic. I, you know, I had not made that connection when I answered yeah. that. Yes. What, what <laughs> deals you? What motivates you? That is yeah. my favorite question. And what, well, you'll get to answer that at the end of this. Um, 
And final question, what did you want to be? I'm guessing uh, statesman, politician, but what did you want to be when you were a little boy? Oof. Um, I really wanted to be, uh, well, I, I wanted to be uh, liked. <laughs> I was I was a new kid, so I think I, I moved a lot and uh, definitely wanted to be, you know, part of the in club. But um, I used to look up to these historical figures like Bismarck and Alexander the Great, you know, thinking they were just these great humans, you know, and, you know, so probably I would have said something like, you know, some statesman from history. Mm. And where did you grow up? You said you moved a lot. Like, um, how many places did you live by the time you graduated high school? Uh, you know, I haven't counted in a while, probably like seven, I guess. Oh, wow. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Was your was that from your parents' jobs? It was partly their jobs, partly their life uh, choices. They, my parents were physicians. They'd grown up in India, in New Delhi, in the capital. Um, my grandparents were, um, my grandfathers were both in the army uh, in India. And so my parents had moved around a lot. They wanted to go and get trained in the U.S. And so they came over uh, when I was six months old. We moved to the U.S. from India. Uh, and their plan was to move back to India after finishing their training. So they were in Columbia and, and St. Luke's in Manhattan. And we lived in New York till I was seven and then moved back to India when I was uh, seven for three years. But then I think after living in the U.S., they found it really hard, especially my mom, uh, found it really hard to adjust back. To life in India. So they decided to come back to the US. And so we came back to New York when I was 11 for a year, then moved to California. Uh, my dad, you know, kind of had the go west idea and bit the bug and um, and ended up moving us to a small town called Fresno. So, mm, oh, my God. Wait. So New York, like Manhattan, we lived in Flushing. We lived in Yonkers, Riverdale and then Westchester. Oh my uh, so, gosh! Yeah, different. I lived in I lived in New York for a long time, so I know what you're talking about, and that's a yeah. big change to India and a big, huge change to Fresno. Yes, they're different. They're different. Uh, I'm married to a, a a New Yorker from Great Neck, from Long Island. So oh, that's where my husband's from. Oh, nice! I yeah. go every summer. I spent twenty summers in Great Neck. Interesting. Okay, so when so you started to talk about Alexander the Great, you had childhood heroes. Would you consider some of your family members or teachers or people along the way who kind of influenced um, your way of thinking or seeing the world? Yeah, I would say um, definitely. I looked up to my uh, my grandfather, my my dad's dad. He was kind of this um, larger than life figure and someone who really had a, a way of being that just resonated with so many uh, things that our family stood for. He was very service oriented. He was a very generous person. He always had a lot of people around in his house, in his milieu. He was a physician, but also did a lot of community work. And so I always looked up to him because he, he had this way of making it seem um, like, like life was about more than yourself. Mm. And yeah. And service was a big part of my family culture. Three of my grandparents are physicians, both my grandfather's wow. and my mom's mom. And she was one of the first female physicians in the Indian government. So um, it was kind that's of- in, uh, That's incredible. Do you have siblings? I have a brother who's a physician. <laughs> I was going to say, I was, I was going to ask that. I was like, okay, so I'm assuming that um, education was a huge value. And along those lines was kind of 
pursuing um, medicine and was that kind of expected? It was, um, it was part of the family ethos, if you will. So I came to college pre-med for about six weeks and, uh, and quickly dropped it. Uh, but yes, it was definitely part of the family, you know, my parents, physician friends and my parents, siblings who are all physicians and married to physicians. We have like 15 in the family. It was oh definitely gosh. part of the, yeah, it was part of it's the. It's so interesting. Cause like my family, I think every single person is in business. Um, <laughs> yep. and then like, that's what you talk about at the dinner table. So yep. is like not blood, but it's like health something you talk about it like what do you talk about at the dinner table when so many people are in in the medical field i mean we talk about trump running for office in 24 oh, we talk geez. about uh you know the rise of china but we also talk about healthcare. it comes up uh my my wife's parents are also both physicians so oh it really gosh. is uh we have a lot of health and she's a physician and she's a physician so I mean, I wish I had some physicians. <laughs> it's useful to have doctors. We talked a lot about, you know, because my grandparents were both, uh, my grandfathers were both in the army, they moved a lot. And my grandmother was in the Indian government doing population health. She ran population health uh, in the 70s. So they talked mm -hmm. a lot about healthcare and how um, how it can help equalize and help, uh, you know, give people more opportunity. And I saw that a lot with my parents uh, who are both, you know, worked in, community, low-income kind of um, communities. They worked in the Bronx in the 80s for 10 years. Mm -hmm. so, Interesting. Yeah. And when you moved, how old were you when you moved to Fresno? And I'm guessing that there wasn't a strong Indian culture, Indian population there, or was there? There were a small group of Indian American families. Uh, my dad had a family friend, but he didn't really know anybody else in, in Fresno. It was a, a definitely an adjustment from New York where we had a lot of family. I moved when I was 11. Um, so fifth grade. So it kind of did fifth grade on in Fresno and went to public school all the way through. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I was in a, I was in a rodeo or several rodeos. Uh, oh my God. I learned a lot about, um, you know, just uh, Fresno is kind of the national testing ground for a lot of brands. Um, mm -hmm. It's very classic uh, Americana. You know, it's a great uh, it's a great place to grow up. I tell a lot of my friends um, it's a really, really nice place to grow up. It feels like a small town, but it's like 700,000 people. Um, oh, and, I didn't realize it's that many people there. Yeah, it has good schools. Uh, my my uh, high school was a big public, you know, California school, and we had really good sports. Uh, our football team was second in the state. Our tennis team was at one point fifteenth in the U.S. Um, so it was like really a, a really big sports school. But then we also had like I took sixteen APs, and you know, oh we had a lot of, yeah, we had a lot of good academic success. We sent a lot of kids to top schools in California, some to Ivy's. So it had this like small town feel, but you could get some of the best opportunities. Lots of access. Yeah. What were you into outside of school? And, um, <laughs> and also with your, with your family, a lot of families who have immigrated that, you know, people, friends of mine, and then also just people on the podcast that I've had, there've been a big mix of people that have shared that their families have either just really quickly tried to assimilate or really tried to hold on to family values. And then that's created its own sense of like challenges and opportunities for kids. Yeah, it definitely comes up a lot in our conversations now, my wife and I, because we have this um, new addition, our one-year-old, and we're trying to figure out like what a good life could look like with her. I think my parents they really wanted my brother and I to have a lot of um, uh, stability after we moved to Fresno. They really wanted us to have a kind of sense of community. So they were pretty intentional 
my dad was looking for a small town where there would be, you know, not a lot of, um, just not the same pressures that you have in a kind of urban, you know, uh, environment with a lot of pressure cooker type schools and feeders. So they were looking for a kind of smaller town and he wanted to reduce his commute and the, you know, stress around, you know, economics. Uh, so we moved from Westchester where my parents were commuting every day into the city, you know, it was like an hour and a half total commute to, you know, Fresno, where his, uh, he built an office six minutes from the house. And my mom's office was eight minutes from the house. So a little commute, no snow. So that was pretty intentional. <laughs> if, you, mm. if you get to know him, he was looking in a farmer's almanac in a li in library, in a library in, in uh, New Rochelle, trying to figure out what cities in America have the most sunshine. <laughs> and it had to be a big enough city for his specialty. He's a pediatric neurologist. So you need a certain number of people to have enough patients. So it had to be like an urban enough environment, but he was like trying to figure out. And so he had narrowed it down to three cities, Reno, San Diego, and Fresno. And so they visited all three and they felt like Reno was too small and provincial and San Diego was a little too large and too competitive. And that's how we ended up in Fresno. Um, well, I love it. Dad. I love the intention, uh, but I also love that you know this story. I love that he's shared it with you. Yeah, he shared it with us years later. Like, I didn't know it at the time. We learned it like 10 years later. Um, and now we he, we talk a lot. I talk to my dad, um, you know, like quite a bit. Yeah. It's one of those, you know, the older you get, the wiser your dad. Of becomes. course. Yeah. Well, and then after, I mean, so, so were you into sports, music, uh, government? Like, what kinds of things did you I pursue did, like, outside of school? A little bit of the the kind of, you know, let's try and do everything. And, you know, let's, you know, I think my parents wanted us to be exposed to a lot of it. So I played tennis um, pretty competitively uh, through through high school. Didn't make the men's team at Harvard. That's the last I played tennis. <laughs> Ended up rowing crew at Harvard instead. But yeah, played tennis quite a bit. Ran track um, the, uh, you know, the 1600. Uh, and so that was kind of my my last time as an athlete it's been a while now <laughs> but i played those are things that can that you can hold on to though tennis and and running are both you know lifelong sports so that's good i'm trying to get back into it my wife's been trying to convince me to get tennis lessons in golden gate park uh there's a new yeah. sports here and she's like just you know get back out there uh yeah it's tough. I, I played in college and i don't play oh. anymore and i, I pickleball Pickleball. Okay. It's all about pickleball and ping pong. Those that's, are your racket sports. That's great. I'm trying pickleball. badminton. I just bought a badminton net. Um, I played piano, sax, and clarinet. So I did Oh, jeez. So you were like the overachiever. Well, I'm guessing I you was. had to have been because Harvard, hello, obviously incredibly challenging to get into. Um, was that like all kind of self-driven? Did you have a teacher who kind of planted the seed or were you one of those like, that's my goal and I'm going to do, I knew what I needed to do to, to get in? I definitely, you know, I definitely wanted to go to a, a top school, but I didn't really know how the college admissions process worked. You know, my wife, we joke because she went to this really competitive public school in Great Neck, which is basically like a private school. It was like fourth in the country for years. Um, and I thought when I was applying to college, I thought Harvard was in New York. <laughs> like that's mm. how much I knew about colleges in the East Coast. Mm. I just assumed everything in the East Coast was in New York. So I was like, yeah, I, I want to go to college in New York. Like Harvard's really famous. Let's apply there. Um, I, you know, had not really been, been to Boston very much. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I, I applied, you know, I think thinking I wanted to go into government at the time I was really interested in policy and government work. And so my, my mom said, well, why don't you apply to the East coast? And, you know, Stanford was my top choice um, until maybe the last, the last year, like my, my senior year. And then I got into Harvard and uh, decided to go. So yeah, yeah it was a um, good choice. Would you say that like, that was the right choice for you? I loved it. I loved it. It's a little controversial. Um, you know, my, my wife and I met freshman year uh, at Harvard and my brother went there three years after me um, and we all went there for grad school as well. So we spent a lot of a lot of dollars in Cambridge and a lot of years in Cambridge, Mass. But I loved it. It was some of the best times and um, yeah, made some great friends there. Uh, so I think it was, I met my wife. So the best thing probably that happened was uh was uh you know going to cvs and moving weekend and and running into her. <laughs> so that is good. a good that is a good thing and so you were gonna pursue um you know some sort of job in government what what kind of turned those that that pursuit um and was that a good program at harvard or kind of like did teachers help guide some of those decisions or or who i guess I mean, in college, I think it was a, uh, it was an opening up to how the world works that really started to change, you know, how I thought about it. I I went into college thinking, you know, business and politics were two totally different worlds. Um, I did a lot of the you know political type stuff that you would do. I was in the Institute of Politics, uh, you know, was in the um, you know did the foreign policy stuff. Um, I switched my major. Um, after the first month of school. Um, so 9-11 was the first day of classes my freshman year, uh, mm. which totally changed uh, a lot of people's, I think, life uh, choices and, and lives. And for me, it was like, oh my God, uh, I really want to work on foreign policy and, and, and politics. Like, I really want to understand how these kinds of things happen. So I switched to IR, like second month of international relations. And then I went and did an uh, internship my junior summer um, well, I did, it, I did political internships, I did like an internship for a guy who was running for Lieutenant governor of New York, because I wanted to be in New York so I could hang out with my girlfriend, now wife, mm. she was going back. So I did that my freshman summer, but then junior summer was meeting, uh, people in DC. I was, uh, uh fortunate enough to get this presidential internship from the Institute of Politics to work as a speechwriter for Malin Albright. Secretary Albright ran a consulting firm at the time called the Albright group. And so I went to DC. And I was doing this internship and she had decided to start a hedge fund at the time, uh, an investment firm called Albright Capital Management, which her son-in-law, Greg Bose, was coming down from uh, Fairfield Greenwich to run, um, Alice Albright's husband. And so I got to know Greg and they said, hey, you, kid, you've taken some corporate finance uh, and some capital markets. Why don't you work on Albright Capital? Like, this will be a great experience for you. You work on this new business idea. We, we're building an investment platform. So that's how I started to get exposed to investing. And Secretary mm. Albright said, if you want to work in policy, you got to understand business and capital. And and that that was what led me to think about investment for the first time and 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 you know private equity and and the whole you know, the whole. World. I think that's I think that's incredible advice. There's a lot of people um, that I've had on the podcast who started in investment banking, and you know obviously worked those crazy hours and, and then went on to start companies and it's like 
just understanding how deal flow works, understanding how the markets work, just it puts them in such a better position to understand the big picture of just the economy, how the, how all all the different moving parts link together. Um, Completely. You know, even though that's not where you ultimately landed, I would argue that that probably has helped you as far as where you are today. Um, just going into Hugely. private equity. Hugely, and it wasn't a world I had any exposure to. My yeah. parents and my grandparents and most of my family was in government or healthcare or both. And so it was like business was this black box, you know, capital and finance and business were like, to me, like this very big black box. And, and I assumed it was all separate, which I didn't realize just how interpenetrated these sectors are and how much it influences mm -hmm. the other sectors. So yeah, it was eye-opening. Definitely eye-opening. Well, of all companies, D.E. Shaw's, you know, top of the game and super intense. Um, what was your experience like there? And did you ever consider kind of sticking with it? Uh, it was an amazing place to work. Um, I was looking for jobs uh, after I did a master's, did a fellowship at Cambridge, England in IR um, and was thinking about jobs, um, you know, right out of school. And Secretary Albright introduced me to a friend of hers who ran DE Shaw a guy named Lou Salkin and said, you should talk to Lou. He's based in California. I was flying back to visit my parents in Fresno. And um, so he said, why don't let's meet for coffee in uh, Cupertino on your way down from SFO to Fresno. So I stopped through Cupertino, met this guy and was just really blown away. I mean, you know, you know jeans and a t-shirt, really casual, very, very thoughtful. And he was um, looking to build uh, the the firm's presence in India and China. They were trying mm. to expand in Asia. And I had studied India and China. I spoke Mandarin and Hindi, had lived in uh, India as a kid, as I mentioned. So I was, my master's was in China. It was US and China policy. That was my master's uh, thesis. Well, you're, you're like unbelievable. I'm just like, as you're talking, I'm like, this is, you sound, you, I can't actually. I thought I had it all figured out. You know, no, no, it's, was it's like, unbelievable. I, I thought, I again, I thought I, I knew what was going on in the world and I thought I had it all figured out. I've Life has been humbling, Shauna. You know, I think as I'm getting closer to 40, now I'm realizing how many things I still don't know and how, uh, you know, how, how big the world is and just how much there is, um, you know, out there. But I, I met Lou and I thought, yeah, this this is a really cool person. And he said, you know, look, I'll give you a really open-ended role. You can come work for me. Um, you can live, you know, in New York. You can move, you know, to Asia if you want. And so I got to live in New York and then I lived in China and India for two and a half years. Um, so I did three, you know, a little over three years there, moved around, helped start up the firm's investment team in China, in Hong Kong, and then in Delhi. Um, so lived out there, which was awesome. Was there in 08 and 09 as a private equity investor, which was a great experience. And the firm had, you know, tremendous respect and a lot of resources. So it was an awesome experience. It's just, um, I think what I discovered was that, you know, the, the, the way in which business and the way in which capital flows, particularly in emerging markets, it's messy. It's messy. And, and, you know, a lot of that wasn't flowing down and wasn't, you know, the trickle down, so to speak, of foreign direct investment wasn't reaching as many of the, you know, the average people, the, the middle classes as I'd expected. Mm, and so yeah. that, that's when I started to get a little bit like disillusioned about the idea of being a foreign investor, helping to fuel growth. It was realizing, you know, this isn't quite working. Yeah, that makes sense. So where did where does Har Harvard Law School fall into all this? And what was the um, impetus? Like, <laughs> they were, were getting upset make... with me. They were getting quite upset. I, I had deferred in college because I'd gotten in right after 
uh, my undergrad, my, I applied my senior year thinking I was going to go to law school. And uh, then I got this fellowship uh, to go to England. And so I deferred for a year. And then I got this opportunity to work for Lou at DE Sean. So I deferred again and I was getting paid really well and had a lot of opportunity. So I just kept deferring every year. I'd write them a letter saying, you know, I'll come, I'll come next year. And at a certain point they were saying, your, your spot's going to be gone if you don't come back. And I think more importantly, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was in med school at Harvard. And she was saying, we were doing long distance for four years. And at the end of the third year, she said, if you don't come back to Boston, like, you know, this is over, we're done. So it was a, it was a twofer. Uh, I did want to go back. <laughs> I did want to go back. And I also wanted to, to kind of um, keep that double that down. relationship going. Yeah. yeah. So I came back to Boston and, um, and I think the other big thing that happened was um, the political world changed a lot. When I was in college, um, you know, I, my politics are probably pretty clear. I worked for Secretary Albright and then I worked in the Obama White House. And, you know, uh, it wasn't really that appealing to me, the idea of working in the federal government. Um, I worked on the Kerry campaign briefly in 04 as like a volunteer. Um, but the, um, the, the, the rise of this kind of new political figure, uh, Senator Obama, who then became President Obama, a bunch of my friends went to work for him early. Um, and, you know, just hearing and seeing the kinds of things that were coming out of that administration, it was different. It felt like politics could actually be positive. You could actually be an idealist and get stuff done. Um, so I, I, you know, I watched a lot of West Wing. <laughs> I was more of the West Wing, not the House of Cards generation, though I yeah. watched House of Cards. I, I really believed. And so I was like, you know, this guy went to HLS. He's amazing. You know, it can't be that bad a place. <laughs> so that, that was part of the logic as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so tell me, uh, tell me about the governance lab. You're getting the full life story here, Shada. This is I, well. I like it because you've got such cool stuff, and I want to. I'm so excited to get to Therma because that's obviously why why you're here. But um, you've got. To, I mean, even it, it almost is like you're going to be 60 instead of almost 40 because you've done so much already. I feel 60. I don't sleep anymore. <laughs> And my oh. hair is growing out a little bit, so I feel closer to 60. But You've done so much. I can, I'm excited oh, to that's kind of watch that's your kind career of and your life. It's, it's no, I look at impressive. friends of mine and colleagues. I'm really inspired. I mean, my wife is really much more impressive than me. But I, I do feel uh, a little bit older. I don't feel quite as young as uh, at 22. The, the governance lab was this um, really um, unexpected turn in life. You know, I was saying serendipity because I could never have imagined I would end up working uh, at a place like the GovLab. But I was in DC as an intern and then a fellow in the National Economic Council um, at the end of Obama one in 2011. And there was a talk by this woman, Beth Novick. She was the deputy CTO um, in the first office of the CTO. Like they decided to create an office of the CTO in the White House, which had never been done before. And she was talking about a book she'd written called the, the WikiGov. And the thesis of the book was tech is transforming life, you know, how we dine, how we date, how we engage in everyday activity, but big public problems uh, around governance and uh, public policy and, 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 and things like safety, sustainability, democracy, uh, tech isn't working on those. So we should be building tech for these big problems, not just to make pizza delivery faster and photo sharing easier. And I listened to her talk and read the book and was like, wow, this woman is next level. She's really amazing. And so she convinced me to leave government and join her uh, to start a center called the Governance Lab or GovLab. 
And so that's how I ended up leaving DC and, and joining her. And we started the center where she teaches at NYU and MIT in 2012 uh, and raised about 15 million of grant funding from Soros and MacArthur and Google.org. And so, yeah, so that's how I got into tech, uh, to build tech for good. And um, what is what what were some of the things you guys accomplished and are still accomplishing? What, tell me about Governance Lab like today. Yeah, I mean, it's been a few years. Uh, I was there a while ago, but I'm still in touch um, with the group. So some of the projects um, that we worked on early on, to give you an example, um, the Libyan government uh, was going through a transition because Muammar Gaddafi um, had passed and um, the government was trying to transform from an autocracy to more of a democracy. Uh, the UN had been engaged through UNDP, UN Development Program, to help Libya rewrite their constitution and to make it more democratic. They wanted to create a tech platform that would allow civil society and policymakers and um, and, and 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 social activists and and community leaders to engage and to actually help write these constitutional amendments together. And so they wanted to create a tech platform to solicit input and to actually generate feedback. Mm. Uh, and, and so we helped them through the UNDP funding create a tech platform to submit amendments and questions and mark them uh, up and down. And it was a combination of tech that you would see in like a Quora um, or a Rap Genius, if you can imagine. Mm. Uh, where you can submit content and then upvote it or downvote it and tag it and give it annotations and give it all kinds of interesting riffs and real-time collaboration from platforms like Google Docs and um, other early cloud uh, real-time collaboration platforms. So it was like a constitutional amendment drafting tech. Using right, total efficiency. Of, yeah, and, and it was meant to be like more democratic than just a bunch of people in a closed room deciding what the constitution was going to say. It was mm, meant to be interesting. Like, and that was an example of a of a, a project, uh, and then another was with the the um, the World Bank. They were trying to help reduce corruption and the way in which tech gets procured. Um, and so, um, the U.S. government took a a page from the World Bank and decided that they were going to try changing tech procurement and cha changing how um, the government buys stuff. And so instead of making it quite as black boxy, they decided they were gonna create a tech platform where you could actually solicit bids and see the bids. Um, you know, and it was designed and built around the idea of like an eBay. Um, so it was meant to be a way of like more transparently creating an online marketplace for goods and services to be bought by a big government. You know, the government buys billions and billions of dollars worth of stuff. So it can be very, very um, uh, opaque, let's just say. And this is again 2012, 2013. So that no, was no, of course. Novel. I mean, these are huge things you guys are accomplishing. It was small projects, but you know, big problems. The <laughs> so, big, that's what I mean. Like, like just crazy things to to tackle. It was super inspiring. I mean, that's why I, you know, thought, oh, this is the future. I mean, this is a real way to make tech for good. Uh, yeah. it still is. I think they're still working on really interesting problems. Yeah. Around, you know, it's it's uh, it's a combination of it. It's a do tank, as I think how Beth describes it. Yeah. And um, how come you moved on from there? Again, people. Um, yeah. My third co-founder at the GovLab is a guy named Aaron Cohen, who's my co-founder at Therma. Aaron's, you know, 15 years older than me, and he's a New Yorker, and um, he's an internet entrepreneur 
um, you know, I'd say by training, he's worked in tech since 97. I think this is his sixth startup. Wow. Uh, yeah. He's like a true entrepreneur. He's got the bug. He's got the bug, um, you know, or the defect. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But he, um, he was teaching at NYU at the time. Beth had recruited him. Uh, he was teaching um, the history of internet media, which he still teaches at NYU every week at the college. And I was like, wow, you're, we're old enough that there's a class on the history of the internet. Like, that's crazy. How old are we? <laughs> um, and Aaron, Beth used to joke that Aaron and I were the private sector guys. Um, you know, I had come from D.E. Shaw and had this, you know, short stint and, and Aaron was a true tech entrepreneur. Aaron convinced me sitting on uh, the roof deck of his apartment in the city that um, the real way to make change with tech was to build a great product. And his point was, look, if you really want to change the world and make it better, the way to scale impact is through great products. And, um, you know, you can't build a great product alone in a do tank. A do tank is great to bring people together. It's mm -hmm. great for getting shining a light on problems. But the best people, we were we were recruiting great talent at the GovLab. But everyone would leave and they would go to Facebook or Google or start their own tech startup. And part of it was just capitalism, you know, the upside and the equity and the pay that you could get in those kinds of companies you couldn't offer, you know, at a do tank. So we'd get these great people for like six or nine month fellowships um, and then they would leave and, and go back to, you know, or go to these hyper growth tech companies. And so, you know, you can't build a great product without great talent. So we couldn't keep any engineering or product or design talent for long enough to build exceptional products. And that's yeah. when I started thinking, well, maybe the right way to do this is to go back to business and actually start a company. And so it kind of went back to business again. Um, and Aaron and I left GovLab to start a company uh, focused on improving safety and sustainability. Um, that was our, you know, that was the kind of two problems we thought, okay, maybe we can build tech for these. Um, and because I had grown up in Fresno, I was really interested in and knew a bit about the food industry. <laughs> so you'll laugh, but it kind of comes full circle. Uh, we were trying to figure out where to work and safety and sustainability are problems, you know, that touch a lot of sectors. And we were looking at housing um, and, and um, you know, real estate and, and, and food. Chipotle had a bunch of food safety issues and food quality issues that year. That was 2015. I remember that. Yeah, people, it was in the news a lot. And I like Chipotle like that. Well, Mike, you know, Chipotle is in the top three, I think most popular <laughs> restaurants for, is definitely for teenagers. My kids are like all about it. Oh, I, it got me through law school. Like I think half my meals, I think. <laughs> law school yeah, Chipotle. All about Chipotle. Yeah. But they were struggling. And I thought, you know, I can't believe a big company like Chipotle is struggling with food safety and, and quality. Like how can that be? And then we started talking to friends in the food industry because I had a bunch of family friends you know, who knew the space. And they said, look, they don't use any tech. It's all paper and pen. It's all manual. There's not a lot of good um, technology. So I went down to Fresno and I talked to some some growers and some distributors. And they said, well, no one from the Valley, no one from Silicon Valley even comes to meet us or, you know, talk about our problems or help us, you know, solve them with tech. You know, no one even comes here. So then we said, okay, maybe food is the industry to work in. And that's how I left GovLab and started working in, in, uh, yeah, safety and sustainability in the farm to fork supply chain. And that was the first tech company I started, which was the precursor to Therma, uh, called Collaborative Inspector, Co-Inspect. Wow. So you've got you full circle here and you're like the tech guy now. Now I'm a tech guy. Yeah. I never <laughs> thought I'd go back guy. to business. I thought I was yeah. going back to government and now I run a tech startup, which is kind well, of you got you got the bug, you got the tech bug. Tell tell me about Therma. You founded it in 2019. I know Aaron's uh your co-founder. 
um, how'd you come up with the name and, and the idea and the problem that you're solving? Like, tell us about the problem you're solving. Yeah. The, the problem we're solving is, you know, really the, the, the massive amount of waste, uh, that happens around cooling, uh, refrigeration and HVAC, uh, cooling just causes a huge amount of waste in, uh, product spoilage and inventory loss, energy consumed, and then equipment failure. Uh, so, you know, those three areas, inventory, energy, and equipment cost businesses billions or tens of billions, and things are run really inefficiently around cooling assets. Um, I'll tell you more about that. You know, we've kind of learned a lot about the climate and, and the climate-related problems of cooling. But when we got started, the problem we were working on, which came from Coinspect, was we were trying to replace pen and paper clipboards with mobile apps. So Coinspect... Mm. Collaborative Inspect was meant to be a mobile app to replace a paper clipboard for doing safety and quality checks every day. You know, sounds straightforward enough, but it turns out it's super hard to convince businesses to, to go from a paper and pen that they've been using for decades to a structured uh, tool uh, where the data is collected and recorded and timestamped. Um, so Co-Inspect, you know, we were scaling from 15 to 19. We've been scaling it for three and a half years, got to 5,000 locations. I think I hit 40 states trying to sell it and slowly, slowly building that uh, product up. And what we discovered is people were telling us they wanted to replace pen and paper, but they didn't want to have to do work that they were essentially faking for decades. So when on a paper, you can mark everything as done and, you know, say it's all fine at the end of the week or the end of the month. You don't actually have to check it every day. Uh, with a mobile app where the timestamp and the geolocation shows you oh, when it's done, it's actually really hard to fake. And so, you know, it makes it way more accurate and trustworthy, but people don't want the extra overhead. So very hard sales cycle. And one of my colleagues looked at me at one point in 2019. This was my uh, colleague, Andrew Hager, who was our head of engineering. And he said, I don't think we're solving this the right way. I think we're making people do work that they don't want to do. We're basically like fighting human nature here. Um, what if we could just automate it? And so we looked at what they were doing and most of what they were checking was temperature of the products and mm. said, I think we can use sensors. There's a new type of sensor. I think we can use sensors to just automate this so people don't have to check it on, on clipboards. And that was like an aha moment. It was like, of course that makes more sense. Of course, you know, replacing the work with uh, automation when they don't want to be doing it is better than making them do stuff they've not been doing for decades. Um, so that's how the idea for Therma came came into you know being it was a let's do this better let's learn from the pain of trying to build this product the wrong way um and so it was there's really, no other product out there like this like a device there are sensors they've been sensors for a while but the problem was that uh refrigeration has uh really dense insulation the side of a fridge or a freezer has this aluminum or steel siding plus the insulation it blocks signal from getting through so mm. Wi-Fi and Bluetooth sensors can't get a signal out. And we were able to use a new connectivity layer called long-range radio to get a signal through. That was really Andrew's contribution. He came from IoT and connectivity. And LoRa is fairly new, long-range radio. It's a type of connectivity that can push signal through dense insulation. So it only works for certain use cases. You can't, you can't push uh, big data packets, so you can't get a video or a photo out. But it's great for things that are like ones and zeros, like a temp or humidity uh, reading. So we were able to use LoRa to push a signal through the inside of refrigeration out um, reliably and wirelessly. And that allowed us to get um, continuous readings and create this, this kind of novel approach. 
Therma is short for Temperature, Humidity, Energy, Remote Monitoring Application. Oh, uh, wow. That, that yeah. seems like an incredibly challenging um, name to get. Like, <laughs> I I feel like it's like, well, Therma, I've heard of that company. Like, it's 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 a powerful name. That, that's kind of you. Well, hopefully people have heard of us a little bit. They're pretty small. Yeah. Well, for people. sure. A small team. What We're, has it been? How how big are you? And what has it been like starting a company and then heading you know global pandemic right after? It was definitely uh you know not not ideal timing. Uh, but I think you know things are never ideal in the sense that you know life doesn't really unfold exactly how we plan. I think the idea was really powerful. The timing could have been disastrous. We were raising capital in January of twenty uh, for this new product called Therma. And we had a term sheet in February um, and then the world fell apart uh, in early March and every restaurant shut down indefinitely. And mm -hmm. you know, we were selling to restaurants and hospitality. So you can imagine investor response was um, subdued <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Um, and half my friends are VCs or PE you know, folks. I have a lot of friends on, on the investing side and people were like, you know, we love you, but like you're selling a new product to businesses that are literally shutting potentially forever. And it was pretty bad. And March was a really, really tough month uh, for the whole world because no one knew what was coming. So we um, we recapped the business. We essentially reset the business uh, and decided to rebuild and rebrand as Therma. So we we essentially folded Co-Inspect into Therma uh, and, and restarted the business in April of 20 um, and raised a little bit of capital, just enough to keep going. We'd gone through a climate hardware accelerator in Brooklyn called UrbanX which started in December of 19. It ended in April with the demo day. Um, and that program really helped us. And then Therma started to take off. You know, now we've got, you know, we, we had at least I think 100 sensors in the world at the time. Now we've got, you know, I think almost 15,000. Um, we had a couple of customers. Now we've got over 1,000. Um, and is are you still selling into the same demographic of, are you expanding beyond? So it's hospitality and... Um, like, tell me who your target customer is. Yeah, it's it's changed a bit. We started in 2020 selling in really, you know, um, in the middle of the pandemic. So in the beginning, the only people who were buying were quick service restaurants. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if you remember back to summer of 20, uh, fast food and 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 quick service were doing really well. Uh, yeah. every, there were lines out the door at McDonald's and and Taco Bell and In and Out. Um, and so, yeah, so we signed up a lot of, um, you know, uh, fast food chains. We have operators of Domino's, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, Burger King, McDonald's, uh, you know, et cetera. Then in 21, other industries started coming back and we started selling into universities and education and then K through 12. Now we've got, I think, over 800 schools, K through 12, um, using our technology across like 85 districts, which is awesome. I love working with schools. Um, and we sell to uh, a bunch of industries. Now we've got amusement parks, casinos, hotels, um, hospitals, um, and, and, you know, uh, supermarket grocery, but a lot of those industries were, were really shut in 2020 and even into 21. So yeah, took us a while uh, to start seeing other, um, other opportunities, uh, beyond restaurants. Um, it's all farm to fork, I'd say at this point, it's, it's almost entirely, um, you know, the food supply chain. Um, yeah, very cool. And so tell me what's the business model? Yeah, you know, tr fairly straightforward. We've got two products. Um, the, the first product, which, you know, is our monitoring product is basically an alarm, uh, that helps you catch and prevent spoilage. 
and and mm. downtime. So we sell it on a subscription basis. You don't pay for hardware. It's a drop in place sensor, you know, size of half a deck of cards. You can drop it in place yourself, hold up a mobile app and you're done. We charge 10 bucks a month uh, per uh, piece of equipment that you're monitoring. So you can have as many pieces of equipment monitored as you want. Some people have two, some have 20 per location. Um, you can have one location or a hundred. We have customers, you know, that run the gamut in terms of size. So it's really designed to be, you know, inventory protection, peace of mind, help you uh, reduce uh, food waste and help you reduce equipment downtime. And that product, you know, has been growing really nicely. I think, you know, over 3X year over year because A, there's no upfront cost. So there's no hardware and no installation. It's just a monitoring fee and which makes it really available and really accessible to a low margin or tight margin business, which most of these companies are doing like less than 10% you know, margin. So they don't have a lot of free cash to, to spend. And so it allowed us to grow in the pandemic as well, when people were really tight, you know, on dollars and, and even now mm -hmm. uh, really tight on dollars. Um, the second product, which I'm even more excited about is our new energy um, solution. So a year ago, we started working on not just monitoring refrigeration, but actually turning it on and off dynamically. And the insight came from one of our customers who said, you know, when energy prices spike, um, we're able to turn power off uh, in one of our cold storage warehouses. And using your sensors, we're able to guarantee what the product is, the quality of the product. We're able to keep sure, you know, keep a, uh, keep a guarantee around the temperature, but we were able to turn refrigeration off for short bursts of time and save money. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was like, what? And they turned power off for like three days when uh, energy prices went up 10X in Texas. And we're like, what? You turned power off for three days in a warehouse? Um, and it was really eye-opening because they saved so much on the energy bill. It got us thinking, well, huh, what if refrigeration is really a battery? You know, the product can stay cold for a while. No one turns refrigeration off dynamically. People just let it run continuously. That's how it's been run for a hundred years. What if we could turn it off using our sensors to guarantee the temperature the whole time? We could actually tap the battery by using the fact that the thermal mass can stay cold. So we started doing that. We rented a test kitchen in South San Francisco. We started turning refrigeration on and off. We showed that we could do it and stay four degrees outside of safety and quality limits. And we started creating like real savings on the energy. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. So now we're turning refrigeration to batteries. That's Oh my gosh, that's huge. So that's kind of the energy solution, and we're selling that on a subscription basis. Um, that's going to that's gonna be incredible. Wow. Well, it's also like I was surprised when I started just like researching you and researching the company. I guess it's just kind of it was a little bit of a blind spot for me. I didn't really, I guess, even think about uh, the impact on climate change. It wasn't even something that was on my radar. Um, you know, I, I didn't, and I read, it says it accounts for estimated 10% of global CO2 emissions. It's just basically the overall refrigeration and HVAC. I didn't realize it. It's pretty surprising. I think we didn't realize it, Aaron and I, when we were starting to work on Therma in 19, we knew that uh, food waste was a big problem, but we were looking at, um, you know, the refrigeration lens from the standpoint of the product, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the food that gets spoiled when you have a downtime or failure event. What we discovered was we were one of my early investors in CoInspect is a guy named Chuck Templeton. Um, again, comes back to people. <laughs> Chuck was the founder of OpenTable. Um, oh, okay. you know, did really well, sold the company um, you know, to Priceline. He lives in Marin. Lovely, lovely human. Really, really savvy guy. He runs a climate fund, climate and food focus fund. Um, and Chuck called me and said, you should check out 
Project Drawdown, they have a report on climate change every year. They analyze 80 solutions to climate change every year. This new product you're working on, um, you know, it just reminds me of their latest report. So I checked out their report. They had 80 solutions to global warming. Solution number four out of 80 was food waste. You know, food waste mm. for a country, it'd be one of the largest emitters. It's this massive problem. A third of all food that gets thrown out, uh, food, uh, food that gets grown gets thrown out. It's just like this big, big um, amount of waste. But solution number one out of 80 on the Project Drawdown list was refrigerant management. And that was like, what? Refrigerants are the chemicals that go into refrigeration and air conditioning. They're these ultra warming chemicals that cause a huge amount of warming, like 1,000 to 11,000 times more than CO2. And they get released when refrigeration and HVAC fails. And that was surprising. I didn't know much about refrigerants. Like it wasn't a problem I was following. And what we discovered was by working on refrigeration, by monitoring it with sensors, we were catching equipment failure. Now we didn't realize we were doing it to reduce refrigerant leaks, but it was a happy byproduct of our product. And we were like, wow, this is much, much bigger than we realized and even bigger than food waste alone. So that's how we started going deeper down the refrigeration and climate path. That was in October of 19. And then we decided to apply for a climate hardware accelerator called UrbanX. And they knew a lot about refrigerants and were like, you're a, you're a great fit. So um, refrigerant management and of course, uh, food waste are two big and, and kind of you know significant areas where we're trying to make a difference. The third is the energy used. Turns out that energy use by these assets is really significant and dumb. Uh, you know, people don't turn refrigeration off dynamically. Mm. Uh, so you think about schools, right? Schools are closed uh, for several months of the year, as one of my colleagues reminded me last year for holidays. Well, schools don't turn refrigeration off when they're when they're closed. Everyone just runs it at baseline. So oh my gosh, yeah, it's like the lights on in the building, you know, in the skyscraper at night when no one's there. You know that kind yeah. of. So we're yeah, trying to all things that you don't think about. Interesting. So tell me about um, your culture, kind of um, your talent acquisition strategy, and kind of as you head into 2023, um, what kind of opportunities there are for people who are interested in this topic. Absolutely. We're, we're really excited. You can probably tell not that many people geek out on refrigeration. and <laughs> Well, I do now. I didn't an hour ago, but I do now. Awesome. I appreciate that. I joke yeah. that my job is to make cooling cool. Like that's what I've <laughs> got to do now. Well, but, you're cool. So I think anything's cool that you talk about. So that's kind of you. That's very yeah. kind of you. You haven't met my wife. She would disagree. But uh, I think my <laughs> daughter still thinks I'm cool. You know, we'll keep that going as long as we can. The um, the company's growing. We're about 80 people. We're based out of the Bay Area. We have folks across the country. Um, we've got a dozen open roles. We just closed a Series A, which is going to be announced in the next probably few weeks. Um, and we've got roles open across engineering, product design, uh, data science, uh, uh software support uh, implementation. We're trying to hire an HVAC technician to do field installation of our control products. So if you know any technicians that are looking to move into tech, um, yeah, we're a young uh, mission, very mission driven, I would say, uh, team. And you know, I joke that our team bleeds green, but it's a pretty passionate team focused on sustainability and, um, you know, and trying to build some tech for good. So yeah, we'd love to, to meet anyone who's interested. HelloTherma.com is our website. I'm on, you know, on email and on social, Monik, M-A-N-I-K at hellotherma.com. Always looking to meet friends and potential partners. So tell me a little bit about the culture and what makes someone successful there as far as um, attributes. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, well, I'm, I'm making the Kool-Aid, so you might have to ask others on the team. Um, 
I think it's a it's a work hard, but also um, you know do good work and and have fun uh, kind of culture. We we definitely you know small but mighty, and we're trying to you know change big and and legacy sectors. So I think there's a a strong sense of impact and a strong sense of um, you know leaving the world a little better than you found it. I think you know that's one thing we've heard from almost every single person on the team is the main reason they came to Therma which I'm really proud of. Like, you know, the main reason they joined was for the impact. You know, that's that's something we're trying to maintain even as we grow. Um, it's it's probably a team that's, um, you know, a little more hands-on. We we meet once a quarter. We do a, a fly-in. We fly out everyone uh, for quarterly on-site. We, try, we have an office in San Francisco. We try and be personal, you know, know each other. <laughs> we're trying to make maintain that sense of, you know, um, family and camaraderie even as we're growing. Um, it's a super um, interdisciplinary team. We've got former chefs, former Olympic athletes, folks that were uh, EMT techs, uh, people that came from journalism. Um, wow. Got randos like myself, you know, who've done a little <laughs> bit of everything and not much of anything. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a fairly multifaceted group, I would say. Yeah. Love it. So tell me about you personally, aside from trying to survive the sleepless nights with an and relatively new baby at home, what do you do to kind of unwind and set yourself up for a good productive week at work? It's <laughs> a good one. Good question. I'm, I was thinking about that over the holidays, uh, you know, how to reset and be really grounded. I think um, a little bit of Peloton, a little bit of, a little bit of working out, yeah. um, Probably uh, aside from zoo and park, which are like a big part of my vocabulary now, um, you know, we I get to see family, you know, and friends a decent amount. So, you know, still like to go out occasionally, less and less. But, um, you know, San Fran's pretty fun to go out hiking and, and, and go out on the water. So, yeah. 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 Love it. Okay. So my final question is what fuels you? I think it's a... Uh, it's a moving target, definitely. I used to be much more motivated by you know what I what I wanted other people to think of me. That's probably what motivated me most when I was you know a teenager or coming into you know young adulthood. And now I think it's more about you know what kind of world will my daughter grow up in. I think about that a lot. Like, will she get to do? I've been very privileged. I've been really really fortunate. Uh, my parents gave my brother and I a lot of opportunity. I think I've been to a hundred countries. I've traveled a lot done some really fun, cool things. And um, I worry a little bit about the world that the next generation is inheriting. Is it going to be as, um, you know, as amazing as, uh, you know, as po- have as much possibility in it? So yeah, that's probably what motivates me is, is, is trying to make sure that the world she grows up in is, um, you know, has as much possibility. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. 